Hey, Park Hill, it's so good to see you guys. See your eyes. You guys all have beautiful eyes. Look at that. It's amazing. Yeah, so my name is Scott Kern. I am the embedded church planter here at Park Hill. Oh, thank you. So kind. Yeah, basically what that means is I am one of the pastors here, and eventually in a few years, the goal is to send me out to plant another church at some point. Um, but right now, I have the joy and privilege to be pastoring here at Park Hill with an amazing team. We are continuing our series through 1 Corinthians. Last week, we uh, did a recap of 1 Corinthians 1 through 4 that we did earlier in the year before COVID um, and kind of summarize where we've been through this process uh, of going through 1 Corinthians. And that has left us um, in chapter five. So yeah, over the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul has been emphatically calling the church in Corinth to embrace unity in the midst of a divisive culture. Paul wants all of his listeners to have this idea, I'll wait for the, the plane, uh, to have this idea of unity in mind as he begins to address specific issues in the church. So he is now heading in to addressing specific issues that are going on in the church of Corinth, which leads us to chapter five, verse one. So you guys ready? First Corinthians chapter five, verse one. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even the pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Welcome to Park Hill Church. You guys are like, oh, now we know why Scott Kern's preaching today. <laughs> Give the young guy this passage. But I seriously, I do want to be as honest and open and available to you guys. So if you have any questions or critiques about my teaching, you can email me at evanwickham at parkhillsd.church. No, but seriously, in all seriousness, if you are new or you've just walked by, welcome. Uh, you are joining a family conversation. So welcome, welcome to the family conversation. Maybe you've actually had that moment uh, where like growing up, you went over to a friend's house um, and at the dinner table, they began talking about the family members who are breaking the house rules and how they need to be better. And you're just that awkward 11 year old kid with matching Volcom shorts and shirt and Oakley's that cover. No, okay, I'm describing just a general 11 year old. That, that isn't me, that's someone, someone else. Um, but you know that feeling, right? You know, uh, you're at someone's house, they're talking about the people uh, who left the dirty laundry on the bathroom floor or are not washing their hands after the bathroom. And it's just, you're learning weird things about someone else's family in a very uncomfortable dinner situation. That's kind of what this conversation is today. Except I hope that this conversation, this family conversation, actually turns out to be a beautiful picture and conversation about what type of community our Father is calling us to be. And although the specific issue in Corinth is about an extreme type of sexual immorality, Paul is making a bigger point about how the church handles persistent, unrepentant sin 
within its own home. So this morning, I want to use this picture of the family gathering around the dinner table because that's what Sunday mornings are here. This is the family meal of Jesus, a community of people who have committed ourselves to each other in the spirit. The church isn't just some country club that you can show up to once a week, pay your union fees and not have to worry about it the rest of the week. It is a family that exists in the messy business of transforming people through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what the church is. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. Some people come to church looking for a way to make life better, to feel good about themselves, to see things in a better light. They arrange a ritual and hire a preacher to make that happen for them. Other people come to church because they want God to save and rule them. They accept the fact that there are temptations and suffering and sacrifices involved in leaving a way of life in which they are in control and plunging into an uncertain existence in which God is in control. One group of people sees religion as a way to a successful and happy life. The other group sees religion as a way in which hurt, flawed, and damaged persons become whole in relation to God. One is the way of enhancing what I want. The other is a commitment of myself to become what God wants. So good. This is the difference between a family and a fan club. We hope that everyone at Park Hill Church comes and chooses to be family. So, we're family at the dinner table having a conversation. And now Paul wants to talk about which kind of family we want to be before we actually eat. So let's read verses one to five to hear what he actually has to say. So it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind that even the pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out, of, put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So I know what you're thinking. This is really intense. Like what is all this about this incestuous relationship, handing a man over to Satan and destroying his flesh? Like, is, is this really in the Bible? Yep. Yeah, this is in the Bible, along with a lot of other uncomfortable stories. Welcome to Christianity. And yes, this is one of those passages in scripture that is not easy for us to read. I have a hard time personally reading this. But that's the point. 
as uncomfortable as we are today reading it, it was just as uncomfortable in Paul's time. I think sometimes a lot of us, we tend to idealize the early church. We're like, we need to get back to what the early church was doing. And in a lot of ways that is true. Um, But the early church struggled with living up to the ideal that God had for it. But that never stopped Paul from calling the church to be who they really are. And that should never stop us as well. And this is really important because if you notice what's going on in this passage, Paul doesn't get caught up in the actual specificity of the sin. Yes, he calls out sexual immorality that is happening in the church, or porneia, which means sex with anyone who you are not married to. But his focus is not just on the sin, it's on how the church is proud about it. And most scholars recognize uh, that when Paul uses the word proud, um, he's most likely referring to when the Corinthian Christians are saying, we are free in Christ. Who can judge me? All things are lawful. And we'll see this in the next chapter. They actually say that, and he's going to quote them on it. And this is what Paul is focusing on in this chapter. For Paul, the problem he has with the Corinthian church is its acceptance of unrepentant sinful behavior that is destroying the family. And so Paul gives us about six phrases in this chapter uh, for the same practice of dealing with this type of sin. So these are the, the six phrases. In verse two, we read, put the person out of fellowship, but do it with heavy hearts. And it's always for the purpose of restoration. In verse five, he says, hand the person over to Satan for the destruction of their, of their flesh or their, their sinful nature, not their actual physicality, but for the, the sinful nature inside them, for the destruction of that and so that their soul might be saved. And then in verse seven, he says, get rid of the old yeast so you can become who you already are, the unleavened bread, become who you are. In verse 11, he says, do not associate with them. Later in verse 11, he says, do not even eat with them. And in verse 13, he says, expel the wicked person. And honestly, I think this is where most of us get uncomfortable reading this passage. This is where I get really uncomfortable with this chapter. And I think this is because many people have failed to properly apply speaking the truth in love from Ephesians 4 in these conversations. Because unfortunately, many religious people have been way too excited to speak about truth but not love. And also unfortunately, and probably way more commonly with people my age and in my generation, many people tend to focus too heavily on the idea of love but neglect truth, which is in and of itself not loving. But with the right understanding of both truth and love, this chapter can actually become a beautiful picture of how to be a loving family toward one another. 
because each of these six phrases are different ways of saying the same thing for Paul. It mainly has to do with the phrase, do not associate with them. And this phrase comes from actually just a single Greek word that we don't actually have an English word to really fit with it. Um, it can more accurately mean, do not mix up closely together with them. And this has more of that sense of, of intimacy that Paul is trying to get out with this word. So it's not talking about, don't hang out with that person. Don't be nice to that person. Just avoid them at all costs. It's about keeping them out of relational intimacy in the family for the safety and protection of the family. But so this makes us ask the question then, in the case of unrepentant sin, why aren't we supposed to mix up closely with them? And this is Paul's answer to that question. He says, don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. So Paul is trying to get us to understand when it comes to persistent, unrepentant sin, there is an exponential effect on the family of God. It will grow. It'll become a hundred times bigger than the original sin itself. And that is the danger that Paul is warning us of. And I think this is specifically difficult uh, for modern Western readers today because we're so individualized that we ignore the fact that our own sin affects the community around us. It doesn't affect just us. It affects others as well. And this is why Paul says to remove them from intimacy and community or to not associate with them. One of the reasons why is to protect the family of God. And the other is for the restoration of the one who is unrepentant. Most, of, most people will tend to think of this idea as kicking someone out of their church and just to leave them and let them rot in their own sin. But this is not Paul's heart at all. He wants the unrepentant person to be removed from intimacy with the family so that they can now become the object of the mission's church or the church's mission of reconciliation. Because how are we supposed to treat others who are outside of the church? As those who are desperate in need of God's love and restoration. This is why Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy and swindlers and idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now... I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, or slanderer, a drunkard, or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside the church? God will judge those outside, but expel the wicked person from among you. And I just want to say this as clearly as I possibly can. This practice 
is not for those outside the church. Paul is telling us that we need to be harder on ourselves than we are on those outside the church. We are not supposed to withhold connection and intimacy with non-Christians. We are supposed to withhold it from those who claim to be Christians and yet are willfully disobeying the teachings of Jesus. And so when the church removes someone from leadership or authority, the hope is that this person would be lovingly brought back into the family of Jesus and restored to full trust and intimacy. And many people, many people even believe that um, this actually happened with this specific person in 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he actually alludes to this type of restoration happen. And most people think that in chapters 2 and 7, Paul's referring back to this moment and saying that is exactly what happened. They were brought back into the family, uh, full of love and grace. And this is why Paul says that the church should mourn and grieve ongoing sin that is being accepted in the community and with heavy hearts remove that person from intimate fellowship in the church. We shouldn't be happy about this. This is a serious thing. And the reason that Paul is doing this, even though it does sound harsh, his whole reason for doing this is to do it out of love. The entire letter to the Corinthians, as we're going to see through these next few weeks, is about being united in Christ, who is the, the very embodiment of love. So when we call one another out on our sin, we are to do it in love. And this is why the great verse on love in 1 Corinthians 13 is in the context of church life and spiritual practices. If Paul wanted these verses to be about weddings and marriages, he would have put it in chapter 7, where he actually talks about marriage. But instead, he couches it in a conversation about life in the church and spiritual disciplines. And so, I want you to hear these words as Paul's exhortation to us on how we are to lovingly approach a fellow follower of Jesus who is continuing in unrepentant sin. This is what Paul says. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. This is the heart posture we are supposed to adopt as the family of Jesus. Even in the process of dealing with continuous unrepentant sin, we are called to love those who we are correcting. And if we are not embodying this as a church, then we will be harming those who truly need loving correction. 
And I know this is not a fun part of church. We're out here on a sunny San Diego morning, and it's beautiful and amazing, and we're together. Um, it's not easy. It's not fun, and it's not supposed to be. But it is actually beautiful. And if we neglect this as a church, then we will miss out on the freedom and beauty that God has for us as a community. Because if you leave with anything from this morning, I want you to leave with this. This chapter is not about sex. This chapter is about the kind of community built on a love that takes seriously the consequences our actions have on each other. I'm going to say that again. This chapter is not about sex. We'll get to that next week. This chapter is about the kind of community built on a love that takes seriously the consequences our actions have on each other. Out of love, we are patient with those who sin. Out of love, we are kind to those around us. Out of love, we do not boast or become prideful in ourselves. And out of love, we protect the family of God from those who claim to be in the family, but actually sow division amongst the church. And this is what Paul's really getting at here in this chapter. Sexual sin is important for the church to call out, and we will be doing that. But if we are only calling out sexual sin, as opposed to all the other sins that Paul has listed here in this chapter, then we are being very hypocritical as Christians. But the solution isn't to diminish the seriousness of sexual sin. It's to increase the seriousness of the other sins. We must be willing to call out continual unrepentant liars and those who slander people in our community uh, as we are those who are sleeping with people who they aren't married to. And we all must always be doing this with the 1 Corinthians 13 type of love. So how does this look practically for us at Park Hill today? Great question. Evan and I were actually talking about this passage uh, yesterday, and we realized that this is an area that Park Hill still has a lot of room to grow in. There's still so much that we have to uncover in this area as a church. But right now, there are about three ways that we do this as a church. Number one is through communities. So right now, our community leaders are held to this type of accountability. If a community leader is found to be an unrepentant sin, then they would be removed from the position, and we would invite them to walk the road of restoration with the Park Hill leadership. And another is on those who teach. Myself, people who are up here uh, leading in worship as well, and those who teach the kids. James 3.1 says that not everyone should seek to be a teacher because they are judged more strictly than everyone else. And so at Park Hill, we believe that God and the church needs to hold its teachers to a higher accountability. And then lastly, those who are on staff at Park Hill. Anyone who holds a place of leadership in our church is held accountable for their discipleship to Jesus. And no one on our staff 
is so important that they'd be allowed to keep their position if they were in continual unrepentant sin. And so as we are about to come and actually eat the meal of Jesus, we as a family sitting here together, having our family conversation can know that Paul is telling us not to feel like we're being watched 24-7. That's not his heart. He wants us to have the full freedom to be who God called us to be as a family. And we need to keep each other in check and spur each other onto that goal together. God wants us to run unhindered into life and life to the fullest. And to do that, we are called to a revolutionary way of living. And that looks harder at the character of those inside than it does to those outside. This is the type of community Park Hill is called to be. And this is still an area, as a church, we have a lot of work ahead of, uh, yeah, we have a lot of work ahead of us. Um, But through the power of the Holy Spirit, in the midst of a committed community, we will be able to see all that God has for us as a church. So I'm going to invite the band back up. Um, Yeah, we're going to go into the last worship set, but I just want to invite those of you who have yet to join a community and who are seeking this type of family, a family that loves each other so much that we won't let each other stay where we are, but actually call them into the better person that God wants them to be. And if you want that, if you desire that in a community, I want to invite you to sign up for our community groups. This is what we desire for Park Hill Church. And this is the way that you get to get in on the life and what the spirit is doing in Park Hill Church. So I strongly encourage you to sign up for a community group. And also for those of you who maybe don't follow Jesus, Um, Are you figuring the Jesus thing out and you're here? Well done. Welcome. That is very brave to come outside and, and be with a church. But you're at the family table with us and you are invited to actually become a part of this family. This family that deeply, deeply loves one another. So if that's you... If you want to, after the gathering, you can find myself, uh, Jason, Tanika, if you guys could lift up your hands real quick, right up here in the front. We would love to be available to you. If, if that is something that you want, a family like this, we would love to talk to you after the gathering. But yeah, would you guys just stand and pray with me? Father, we thank you that that you don't hide hard and difficult things from your children. I thank you for a church that is willing to commit themselves to showing up on Sunday morning, hearing difficult things and still praising your name, who you are, and accepting your authority over their life. 
it's so strange for those outside. I remember thinking that is a strange, strange thing. And it's also beautiful. It's the way you designed it. This level of commitment that we have for one another. So thank you for being with us. Thank you for submitting yourself, Jesus, to the Father, to his will, giving us an example of what this looks like. Yeah, we praise you and we give you all the glory through song and bread and cup and word and prayer. All of it is for you. So would you receive this in the name of Jesus? Amen.